Galatians 3, 1 through 3 says, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? And Romans 1, 16 through 17 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For, it, it, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith, for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. This is the word of, of the Lord. We've heard uh, the scripture reading, and that's where we'll be today in Philippians chapter 3, if you want to go ahead and turn. But while you're turning, I do want to, before we get into the message, I experienced something Tuesday morning that was just profound and really ministered to my heart. As uh, several of us from the church were there at the county commissioner's uh, chamber, where one of our members was recognized, a proclamation was given in their behalf for their 25 years of service and, and, in the sheriff's department. And so Brian Rimsnyder, where are you, Brian? Stand up, Brian, and Kat, his wife, y'all, both of you stand. I, go ahead. Amen. I, I just think it's important when one of our members is recognized in the community for their ethical Christian values, uh, we, we, should, we should celebrate that with them, should we not? I mean, 25 years of service. Cat has served 40 years. That's, that's 65 years of service they've given to our county to protect and help people. And that says a lot about this family. But what really spoke to me that morning was the number of county commissioners and our sheriff of the county who, who acknowledged and publicly proclaimed how Brian's witness, how he is a Christian, he's a godly man, and it impacted them. And 25 years of serving, and I know that Brian has taken time to pray with uh, those who were part of the employees, the staff of the, of the county, and when they were going through difficulty in their life, Brian was right there to pray with them, to guide them, to encourage them, to strengthen them in the Lord. This is not someone who, who put Christ into a Sunday morning experience, but he took Christ with him because he's in Christ. And, and God used him in his role in the county. And, and, you know, with all we've been talking about, you know, being salt and light and living out, sharing our faith, and, and God brings to us a wonderful example of that. And so it's something worth celebrating. Amen? Yeah. Amen. And it inspires us to continue. Brian, thank you for your years of service. Kat, you as well. But Brian, he specializes in canine, uh, uh, the dogs, uh, helping uh, train those dogs and then using those dogs in difficult situations. And uh, he and Kat uh, have continued that, that training even in their own business that they now have. So he's not really retiring, even though he retired from the county. Um, and they made it clear, the sheriff said, he will be helping us continue to train the canines for our service. So we are, we are th proud of him, thankful for you, brother. And thank you most of all for your Christian witness in our community. Amen. Amen. So now let's go ahead and turn to, uh, if we can, to Philippians chapter 3. Several of you mentioned to me when I came in, you said, they said, Pastor, are you okay? Because my eyes are, are bloodshot. And all I can tell you is uh, I'm not suffering with gout. Thank the Lord. Uh, I'm on some pretty stiff medication that's helping with that. And, 
And eventually, if, if I uh, can keep my uric acid number low enough, it will release or extract out the crystallization. I just, all that made no sense to most of you. That's okay. But, but I was on a steroid for uh, six weeks, and it was pretty stringent. And, uh, and so there's a lot of side effects to it. One is the swelling of your face and your neck, and, and I've had some of that happen. But m more concerning is my eyes. It does affect your eyes. It can cause cataract. It can cause glaucoma, or it can even do worse damage. So I'm going in this week to see a doctor about that. But uh, that's why my eyes are bloodshot. I really didn't stay up late last night watching the Panthers lose and drinking too much. Okay, that was not the case. All right, just want to clear that. All right. So well, we're in the Word here in chapter 3. We finally come to chapter 3 in Philippians. Let's start with prayer. Lord, as we get into the Word this morning, we're asking that you would open our eyes, our spiritual eyes. Unless you do that, we don't have any hope of understanding the truth before us. So we're asking, open our eyes to see that the Holy Spirit would guide us through this, this passage and would bring out to us the things that we individually need to hear as well as the things that we need to hear corporately as a church. May your will be done in Jesus' name. Amen. So the question is, how do you, how do you rejoice when trouble rises? How do you rejoice? That is certainly the case here in the beginning of chapter 3. Paul is addressing a false teaching that had swept through the church in Philippi. And so his letter to the Philippian church, he's actually dealing with the false teaching that was given there. It's interesting how false teachers find their way into the church. You would think the church's worst enemy is what's happening on the outside. They're attacking us from the outside. That's not the case. In the New Testament, in so many of the epistles, it's clear that the greatest threat to the church is from within. False teaching. And in this case, it's a false teaching on the doctrine of salvation. These were the Judaizers, the Jewish legalists. And they had brought their message of a works righteousness into salvation. So before we unpack Paul's teaching on salvation by human effort versus salvation by Christ work on the cross. Let's first look at verse 1 because it's very interesting. He's about to discuss a subject of great concern with the believers in Philippi, and yet he begins his thoughts with this. Finally, my brothers, finally meaning a transition. He's coming to a new focus. He, he wants to focus in on this, this concern. And he says, finally, brothers, rejoice in the Lord. The Apostle Paul is saying, if you can't rejoice in your circumstances, then rejoice in the one who controls your circumstances. No amens? If you cannot rejoice in the circumstance that God has given you, blessed you with, then rejoice in the God who controls that circumstance. Rejoice in the Lord. It's the first time in Philippians, in this letter, that he actually adds in the Lord. But that in itself is the secret. You're able to rejoice because you are in the Lord. To rejoice in the Lord is to fix your eyes on him. To think about him is to know that while my circumstances change like the wind, and boy do they ever, my God never changes. He is immovable, unshakable. He's immutable. My God is sovereign over every detail of my life, and I can always find rest in him, regardless the circumstance. I love this. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith, because although he might not change the situation you're in, he will change you. And that's even better. Rather than God just changing my circumstance, aren't we really all about in this New Testament life that we live, the Holy Spirit conforming us to the image of Jesus? We desperately need the Holy Spirit 
to change us in our circumstance. And if we didn't have a circumstance, we probably wouldn't be listening to the Holy Spirit. It's amazing how God uses our trials and our troubles to get our attention so that we might continue to grow in the strength, in the grace, and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And then he says in the latter part of verse 1, to write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Here Paul's referring to the fact that he has already spoken of. He hasn't really addressed it yet, but he's spoken of this concern with false teachers that were among the believers in Philippi. And now he feels the need to actually give a teaching on it. He's saying speaking to this issue is not going to be trouble for me because I know that by speaking it to you, it will safeguard you. It will help you. Sometimes we hold back the truth from people that desperately need it. The very thing that they need, we have, but we don't share Paul is saying, it's not going to hurt me to share it. I'm not going to not share it because of how I think the person will come back at me. Will I get blowback from sharing truth? Now, obviously, we're saying that you're sharing the truth in love. You're not being belligerent. You're not being obnoxious when you share it. You're not coming across as arrogant, prideful when you share it. You come with humility in your heart because you desperately want to help this person. You're, you have their interest in heart. You want to see them reconciled to God. You want to see them in right relationship with others, with the church, with you. So we come with humility as we share the truth. And to not share it does not help them. We need to share. And Paul's saying, it's really no skin off my back to love you enough to share with you the truth. Because I know that if I can share it with you, it has the potential of safeguarding you in the future against these false teachers. So if you want to know what he said earlier about the issue, you'd go back to chapter 1, verse 27, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. He wants the church to be working harmoniously. We are soul brothers and sisters. And we are to work for the same purpose, the same cause, to win souls to Christ. By sharing the gospel, letting the Holy Spirit use that to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And then he says in verse 28 of chapter 1, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. And the opponents he's speaking of are those who were teaching falsely, who as they would go out and share the gospel that Paul had taught them when he spent time with them in Philippi, these, these false teachers would say, what are you doing? You got it all wrong. You got to teach this. And they were pointing them back to works, to fleshly works. And the people are sharing that you come to Christ by faith alone, in Christ alone. And he goes on, he says, This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, listen church, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his name's sake. That is God's will that we would be so forward, lovingly forward in sharing the gospel with this world that we would actually experience suffering for the sake of Christ. Every one of us that is saved. In verse 30, he says, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. The Jews from Jerusalem chased him all over Europe because he was preaching the gospel. And they caught up with him. They beat him up almost to death. But he didn't stop sharing the gospel. And now he's saying, you have your opportunity because they're among you. Be faithful. Friends, we live in a day and age when people mock and laugh and ridicule the Bible. We live in a day that if you say, well, the scripture says, they're just going to turn you off. They're going to just, oh my gosh, you really believe that Neanderthal book? Seriously, it's archaic. Get into the 21st century, dude. That's the response. 
And the reason they take that position is because, listen, listen, please, their eyes, spiritual eyes, have not been opened. They're blind to the truth. So rather than get upset with them because they're not receiving it, rather than think, well, I can't share it anymore because nobody wants to hear it, you need to spend a lot more time on your knees before you share every morning. And the prayer is, God, open my eyes to see how lost this world is and the state of depravity that it's in. I used to be in that. You saved me from that. You opened my, my spiritual eyes to see the truth. Open their eyes that they would understand what I'm going to share with them today. You're still going to get blowback. You'll still suffer. But it's for Christ's sake that you're suffering. That's what Paul said there. Now let's go back to chapter 3, verse 2. Look out for the, boy, he, you talk about shooting straight here. This is a direct warning to the church in Philippi. Look out for the dogs. And he's not referring to canine. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Paul is speaking direct. Paul is wanting, because he loves them. And he knows how deceptive the message of these Judaizers really is. He doesn't want them to fall into that. The problem has to do with how these Judaizers are trying to change the doctrine on salvation. They are preaching that man in his humanness has to put forth his own effort in order to receive redemption from God. They're preaching the circumcision of the flesh. And that's the problem. It's a fleshly teaching. The flesh plays no part in saving you. May I say that again? The flesh plays no part in saving you. It is solely on the work of our Savior, Jesus Christ, that we find redemption. Our self-righteousness could never generate true salvation for any one of us. Legalism can never save you. Self-righteousness, thinking that I'm such a good person, I have a great reputation in the community, people look up to me, I go to church, people know that I go to church, they know I'm a Christian, blah, blah, blah. None of that plays any part in your salvation. None of it. It is solely on the work of Jesus Christ and our faith in him. Now, the Apostle Paul knew too well the dangers of self-righteousness and legalism because before he was saved by Christ, he was a self-made religious zealot. He lived by the flesh. But that religion couldn't save him because it propped up his own self-righteousness, which hid him from the true sinful state of his life. It was only when Jesus Christ confronted Paul on the road to Damascus that he came to realize just how sinful he really was and how all of his good works were really just filthy rags in God's sight. All of his good works were rags in God's sight. So Paul knows a thing or two about false salvation and true salvation. And he doesn't mince his words when he addresses those who have come into the church with a false message on salvation. He calls them dogs, evildoers. They are those who mutilate the flesh. Those are strong words describing these false teachers. The Jews called Gentiles dogs. Here, Paul is describing the Jewish teachers as dogs. And then the Jews called, it's interesting, look out for the evildoers. The Judaizers, they prided themselves on being workers of righteousness. But here Paul describes their work as evil. Any attempt to please God by one's own works always takes attention away from Jesus Christ. Let me say that again, because I think it can hit home if we'll allow the Spirit to bring it to us. Any attempt to please God by one's own works always takes away attention from Christ. See, it's his work on the cross that we should focus on, nothing else. Works righteousness is the worst form of wickedness because it puts you and your works ahead of Christ and his work. That's what makes it so evil. 
And some of us have been living in this works righteousness, and we don't realize that the Scripture teaches that what we're living in is absolutely evil. It's stealing away the work of Jesus in our life. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. The true worship of God happens in the spirit, never in the flesh. Let me have you turn in your Bible to John chapter 4, verse 20. Turn there, if you will, please. John 4, 20. Is this resonating with anyone today? I love how the scripture is able to, it, it, God uses it to open us up like we're in surgery. And he's trying to help us see things that maybe we've never seen. And maybe for some of you, this is really hitting home. I hope it is. I know that when I prepare for a sermon, it always preaches to me. Always. By the way, I've, I've never preached, in all my years, I've never preached a sermon on marriage that Rini and I weren't going through a problem in our marriage when I was preaching it. I mean, I felt like the biggest hypocrite around. But see, God would have me focus on, on the scripture of my marriage, and it would change me, even with my relationship with my wife. That's what the word does. And so the enemy would always try to stir up something between us before I'd preach it so that I wouldn't preach it. But I'm thankful I did preach it. And I'm thankful that I said to the people, uh, we, we ain't doing so well right now. So I'm not preaching this because I've got it all together. I'm preaching it because it's the truth of God's word and I'm having to live by it myself. So this word is the same. I'm having to live by this. It's so easy to allow pride to slip in and we start relishing what we have done. Now, don't tell me that when somebody's come to you and said, hey, man, wow, that was awesome what God did through you. You, you really nailed it, man. That was something. Don't tell me there's not a part of you that goes, oh, oh, yeah. And you go, oh, no, please stop, stop. Please, please. It's always there lurching, lurking around the corner, isn't it? The old flesh. John 4, 20, the woman at the well, she said to Jesus, our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the father. You worship what you do not know. She was a Samaritan. You worship what you do not know. We, the Jews, worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. Jesus was a Jew. God came to the Jews. Those were his chosen, holy, dearly loved. Salvation would come through the Jews. Unfortunately, not even the Jews believed it when Jesus was presented to them as Messiah. Verse 23, but the hour is coming and now is here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. What people? Those who worship him in spirit and truth. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Is there any other worship acceptable to God? I ask you. He said, you must worship me in spirit and truth. True worship honors Jesus Christ. Nobody else. True worship depends on God's grace, not on man's fleshly strength. So much of what passes for Christian faith today is really just a fleshly religion. Be so careful not to fall into that. That's why we're teaching this this morning, to guard, to warn you of how easy it is to fall into fleshly religion. Verse 3, for we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God in glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. He said four things here. First, we are the circumcision. Our circumcision is not the cutting of the blood as was the case for Abraham and for the people when God gave Moses the law of God. In that day, their relationship with God was marked by a circumcision of the flesh on the eighth day. Our circumcision is not a fleshly circumcision. It is a circumcision of the heart. Ours is a spiritual circumcision, which happens only by faith in Jesus Christ. It has nothing to do with my ability 
to assist Jesus in my salvation. For the Judaizers, it was a circumcision of the flesh that gave them a right relationship with God. But then Christ died on the cross for the sins of mankind. By the way, that right relationship with God was never right. Because the circumcision of the heart was part of the law, the Mosaic law, and the reality is the law could ne- nobody could ever keep the law. So therefore, you're going to fall short of God's demand of pure, purity, perfection, and righteousness. So even the thing that they thought was making them righteous could never make them righteous. So why did Christ die on the cross? If fleshly circumcision was enough to save me, then why did Jesus go to the cross? If legalism were enough to save me, if, if, if my righteous works were enough to save me, then Jesus died in vain. I don't need that. I've got my works. But the fact is, God sent his son into the world to die for our sins. It was the only way that we could be saved, through the work of Christ. Circumcision of the flesh is only a symbol of a clean heart for the Jews in the Old Testament. It was a symbol. But it wasn't a clean heart that they had. It was an outward external representation that we belong to God. But there was no change in many of those who were circumcised in the flesh, most of them. And neither did it cleanse hearts today. If you're placing an emphasis on any work in the church, the fact that you were baptized, that doesn't mean that you're saved. Baptism is subsequent to salvation, but it's by faith. You're lowered in the water because you are saying, I have died to the old nature. Christ has risen me. I have a new life in him. You're just testifying to that. But a lot of people have been baptized and never were really saved. So it becomes just a work to them. And they'll go around and say, I know I'm saved because Pastor Greg, I remember back when you invited me to come forward and you prayed a prayer with me. I know I'm saved because you prayed a prayer. Are you kidding me? If that's what that meant to you, you're not saved. It wasn't the work of you walking down and somebody praying for you. I don't do that anymore. I don't have people come forward and me pray a prayer with them, a, a prayer of uh, a, a sinner's prayer. Because it's too easy for people to walk away thinking they're saved, and they're not. No, salvation happens by Christ alone, by your faith in him alone. It can happen right here, right now in this service, and you never have to lift a hand or walk an aisle or say anything. It can happen just by the fact that Jesus has has shown you the truth. Your eyes have been opened. You see it, and by faith, you recognize your sinful condition, and you are asking him for forgiveness. You repent, and you receive him. It's done. And I had no part in that. No man should ever have a part in salvation. We don't pass an offering plate for the same reason. Because sometimes people... They think that by giving to the church, that's, that's how I know I'm in good standing with God. You're not in good standing by giving money. That'll never, that'll never save you. A lot of people are giving a lot of money, and they're going to die and go to hell. Satan will make kindling wood out of them in hell. Actually not, because he will be suffering too much himself. But you're with him. Ugh, not good. But I gave all that money. Yeah, but it didn't save you. I, literally, I remember... Uh, when we used to pass the plate in the past, not here, but in another church, we'd pass the plate, and then there were people who, godly people, who would count the money, and then they would make the deposit. I never was part of any of that. I never knew what, who gave what. I don't know in this church who gives what. I have no, no clue. I don't want to know. We've got God. God has provided those people who take care of that. Okay. But back then, we would pass the plate, and then they would take the, 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 the offering bags, they would pour them out, and they would go through to count the money. And they would find these little envelopes that were in the back of the pew chair that people could use to put their money in. They put cash in, and they might put a check in it. Whatever, that's fine. But they would find envelopes that were empty. We were passing the offering plate, making a public display and there were people who didn't want to give but they felt pressure by passing the plate so they would grab one of those envelopes and then they would put the envelope in the bag 
Now, here at Bureau Bible Fellowship, we don't want to do that to people. Look, I don't want to assist you in your hypocrisy. And we were causing people to be hypocrites. We played a role in that. So now we don't pass anything. We might say at the beginning of the service, hey, if you want to give, if God's led you to give, then there's a box back over here, an offering box. You can put your offering in that, or you can give online, whatever. But that's between you and God. So somebody could come in and walk around and fellowship, and then they just walk over and privately, walking by, just drop something in. There's no attention brought to it. We don't want the flesh to enter into the worship of God. Does that make sense? For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. But for those who recognize they cannot save themselves and come to Christ with the full knowledge of their own sinful condition, Christ redeems them from all sin. If they understand that, then Christ can redeem them from their sin. But if you think for a second that by you just being a good person, Christ will redeem you, you're wrong. Okay? Works righteous acts, outward displays of righteousness that can never change your heart will never make you right in God's eyes. Instead, we're called to live out our salvation with fear and trembling. That's the process of sanctification. I'm going to live it. And every day I'm going to allow the Spirit of God to conform me to Jesus more and more. It's a constant change going on in believers by God. For we are the circumcision, the wor who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus. Let's cover those two things. What sets the true believer apart from a false worshiper or a false believer is the very act of worship. When a believer worships God, he worships not in flesh. He worships in spirit and truth. And God gets all the glory. It is in our worship that we give Jesus Christ all the credit for our salvation. We simply become absorbed in worshiping him. We no longer think of ourselves in our worship. True worshipers, listen church, true worshipers never bring attention to themselves in worship. We try to stay away from songs that talk more about us than God. Because we don't want to focus on man. We focus on our God. That's what worship is. The focus of worship is never to be on the stage, those who lead us. Well, that's not our focus. I, we didn't, Brenton, Brenton and I did not talk about this, but I'm just, I was thrilled sitting on the front pew chair. The fact that there was only a guitar and a soft keyboard. That's it today. Normally we have a full band, right? Today we didn't. It was simple, very simple. But then this is a pure and simple church. We've said that from the beginning. Paul said, don't be what? Don't be, don't be led astray by Satan and his ways. Keep it simple and pure in your devotion to Christ. Today, that's what we had. And so the question for some of you is, did that bother you? That there wasn't a full band, that there weren't lights, that there wasn't smoke coming from somewhere up here, some little smoke machine that was kind of making this place feel like an experience with God? Did that bother you that it was so simple? If it bothered you, you need to check yourself at the door with whether you really understand worship or not. True worship in spirit and truth can happen anywhere at any time. You can worship God with nobody else around. You can be in a prayer closet and worship God. And so today, we worship God in spirit and truth, those of us who are true believers. Now, I'm not saying that every week it's like this. We have a band. We're not against those things or lights or whatever. We're borrowing this building, so we don't have any lights. One day, hopefully, we have a church building, and we'll probably have some lights. But we never want that to be the focus because it's not about man. It's about God. Anything man does draws away. So if you've got people on the stage who are presenting, they're the worship leader or the praise team, whatever you're, you know, if, 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 if they are the, the attraction, if how they play the music is the attraction, that's not true worship. True worship can happen anywhere at any time, even with people who are gifted musicians, who have lights. But the focus, they don't bring it, the attention to them. They give all glory and praise and honor to God, and they are simply pointing you to him. They don't want to hinder true worship. Because the only way we can truly worship God is by spirit and truth. Amen? 
So put no, he finishes out and he says, put no confidence in the flesh. Don't put any confidence in what man can do in his flesh, in his own ability apart from God. This is what the Jews were doing, placing confidence in their circumcision. They prided themselves in following the law as Moses had done. But that is not enough to save you. To the church in Corinth, Paul said it this way in 2 Corinthians 3, 4. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, not of the law, but of the Spirit. For the law kills, but the Spirit gives life. So we're not here to be a show. We're not here to be simply externally that we look good, that we look spiritual, we look godly. That's a religion. Circumcision of the heart, my heart's changed. And because my heart's changed, it does change my behavior on the outside. But it's from a pure heart that I change. See, it's more organic. It's the work of Christ in me that comes out of me, rather than the focus being on the outside of me, how I dress, how I speak at church, how, I, how good I sing. Oh, Lord God when I pray, you know, trying to act so spiritual. Get off that nonsense. It's from the heart that we worship him. True believers, they view flesh, listen, true believers view flesh as sinful. The last thing they want to do is bring attention to themselves. Without any capacity to merit salvation, or the ability to please God. We never want that, the fleshly nature leading us. Now, if it were possible for our works to save us, guess who would be the first guy in line who qualifies? It would be the Apostle Paul. And that's what he goes into. Look what he says in verse 4. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. Now, obviously, Paul's not saying that my flesh can save me. He's saying, if, if I'm going to play along with your game, Pharisees, you, you Judaizers, so let's say that you can be right with God in your fleshly abilities. If, if that's true, I'm ahead of you. He said, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Paul now challenges anyone who thinks he can equal his background and attainment as a legalistic Jew. Is there anybody out there that can say all of that? They couldn't. This is Paul giving us an autobiographical sketch of his former life before Christ. He's going to detail seven reasons why he used to think he was justified in the eyes of God before coming to faith in Christ. He calls it his former confidence, which is another way of saying his former proud reliance on legalistic righteousness. And unfortunately, there are those of us today who slip into that. Some of us live there. This is for you today. While it seems that Paul is bragging about his accomplishments, really, don't... That's not what he's doing. He's actually giving a very stern warning to the church. He's going to use his own personal testimony to describe how foolish he was in placing confidence in his flesh rather than in Christ. So here, let's hit the, the seven real quick. Number one, circumcised on the eighth day. That would be in accordance with God's command to Abraham and to the Mosaic law. Okay. Then he said, of the pe number two, of the people of Israel. The, the Israelites were God's chosen, holy, and dearly loved. He goes, I belong to God's chosen, holy, dearly loved. Nobody else on the earth can say that. And he was right. Number three, of the tribe of Benjamin. His Jewish name, by the way, was not Paul. That was his Greek name. That would have been common to people in, in the Greek world that they were, the culture of Greek, I should say. His, his name was Saul. That's his Jewish name, okay? And so he's saying, uh, I've been named after King Saul, who also was a Benjaminite, like me. I came from a wonderful tribe. By the way, the, Benj the tribe of Benjamin, that's the tribe that their territory is closest to Jerusalem. By the way, the Benjaminite tribe, uh, we're the ones that when King David 
fell into trial and trouble and had to escape Jerusalem, we stayed faithful to him. And then he says, I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. To the Jewish legalists, Paul was extremely zealous for the traditions of his Jewish forefathers, the heritage that they had passed down. Number five, as to the law, I was a Pharisee. Paul was a member of the strictest sect of Judaism. He studied under the greatest teacher of his day, Gamaliel. And he was, and, and, and he was faithful to study the word, the Old Testament Torah. As to zeal, I was a persecutor of the church. You want to talk about zeal? I was the guy going out and rounding up Christians who believed in Jesus as Messiah. I would round them up and throw them in prison. Many were put to death, and I approved of it, including Stephen. As to righteousness under the law, I was blameless. As to self-righteousness, adhering to the Torah, Paul is saying, you would have to say that I'm faultless. Paul is saying that if anyone could have been saved by acts of self-righteousness, it would have been me. But the truth is, it all amounted to nothing. It couldn't save him from his sinful condition. And that is what self-righteousness does. Listen, please hear this, because some of us have been caught up in self-righteousness. We've been caught up in works righteousness, thinking that somehow we are appeasing God by what we do rather than what Christ has done. And I want you to hear this. It, could, it couldn't save him from his sinful condition. And that is what self-righteousness does to you. It blinds you to the truth of your own sinfulness. The reason you can't see your sins is because you're too busy thinking that you are self-righteous. So what happened to Paul? Well, when he was Saul, he was traveling to go persecute more Christians. And on the road to Damascus, Jesus himself confronted Paul and arrested Paul and came in a bright light and blinded Paul physically. Here's a man who's relied on the external to prove that he was faithful to God and he was externally stopped. He was blinded. And then Jesus spoke to him, the one that he's been persecuting Christians for believing in. And Jesus himself said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Why are you persecuting me? By persecuting believers, you're persecuting me, Saul. And I am Messiah. I am God. This changed Saul's life. So much so that in verse 7, Paul said, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Everything I just said to you about my life, I count it all as loss compared to the, for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. There's only one way to know him, folks. Right here. The more time you spend in this, the more you'll understand who God is. The more you'll understand who Jesus is. The less time you spend in this, the more time you create a Jesus that doesn't really exist. It's a difference between Jesus of the Bible and the Jesus you've created in your head. Your social justice Jesus. There's nowhere in the scripture that shows that. that your, your, little, your little, you know, Jesus that's so graceful, so merciful, so loving. That's not the Jesus of the Bible. Yes, Jesus was merciful, graceful, and loving, and he was also a truth teller. He was not afraid to confront sin, uh, he, okay? He confronted Saul pretty heavy and hard, knocked him down, blinded him. Jesus is not afraid. Uh, so you got to get the Jesus of the Bible in you. There's only one way to do that, get in the Bible. The more time you spend here, the more you'll understand who God is. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish what is he saying all of my good works all the things i prided myself in i now count as refuse let me get more honest with you he now counts all those works as dung that's what all that stuff means now It means nothing to Paul. 
I count it all rubbish in order, here it is, that I may gain Christ. You cannot gain Christ if you've got this pridefulness in you, thinking that you yourself are good enough. He says, I I just want to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. After his encounter with Christ on the road to Damascus, Paul's understanding of righteousness completely changed. He came to realize that not only is self-righteousness that comes from the law faulty, but it causes us to be under a curse. Oh yeah, your self-righteousness is cursing you. Galatians 3.10, write it down. Galatians 3.10, let me read it. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Well, no man's ever been faithful to the law, so therefore you're cursed. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith, not works. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith, not our good works. What Paul used to believe was a great prophet. Now he sees a great loss. In fact, after Paul came into the knowledge of the truth about salvation, he now considers everything else completely loss in his life. To Paul, the lost treasures of his unregenerate existence are now seen as rubbish, as refuse. His drive in life was no longer to try and earn his own righteousness by keeping the Mosaic law, but rather it was to gain Christ and be found in him. That's how we should live every day. I want to be found in Christ today. I want people to see Christ in me, the hope of glory. I want to go out today and share the seed, the word of God, the truth with people who don't know him. I will suffer for the sake of Jesus Christ if necessary. I'll do whatever it takes. I'm going to be faithful to God by faith, not by my works. And that's when God starts using your works because your works are now his works. For we are created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God, he's the one who gave them to us beforehand that we would walk in them. Romans 5.1, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You'll never have peace with God until you give up self-righteousness, self-works, and all that nonsense like the Judaizers are teaching, and you just walk with God. They're saying, man, it's all about physical circumcision. No, it's not. It's about spiritual circumcision by faith in Christ, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. Man, that's what I want. When this body gives out and I'm in the grave, I'm thankful that I'm going to be raised. My body will be raised Because Jesus was raised by the Father, God will raise me as well. Amen. And that by any means possible, I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Because I'm going to become like him in his death. Thank you, God, that when I go in the grave, that grave cannot hold me any more than it can hold him. That on that day, Jesus said, I will be with him in glory. Isn't that wonderful? He said to the thief, the sinner, who was repentant, today you'll be with me, today. And he wasn't referring to right there on the cross, after we die, we will be together. Amen. Peter's hope. That's why Paul said, for to me to live is Christ and to die is even better. That's why Paul said in Corinthians, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So I want to live my life by faith in Christ alone. And I don't want to bring any glory to myself. I only want God to be glorified. I only want to worship him in spirit and truth. I only want to to do the things and see and bring everything to him. He's my attention getter. 
Nothing else matters. That's how we should approach every Sunday morning. You're going to church not to be seen, not to look cool, not to look good, righteous, godly. I'm going to church to worship my God in spirit and truth. Amen. Amen. And then God uses your witness. People do see the outside, but it didn't start there for you. It was simply your heart to worship him. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you for your word. We thank you for this teaching that Paul has given to the church at Philippi. It is a teaching for us as well. Help us to recognize where we are relying upon our own flesh to please you and to know that that will never please you. Lord, help us to understand that it is only in, by faith alone in Christ alone that we are saved, that we have to see because our spiritual eyes have been opened. We see our sinfulness the way you see it. And we reach out by faith and we are saved. God, let that be the case today. Maybe there's somebody here today who right now you are opening their eyes, spiritual eyes, to see their sinful condition, how they have put their hope in their works, in their reputation. And now they are saying, forgive me, Lord. I am a sinner. I could never merit salvation by my works. I look to Jesus to save me from my sinfulness. Oh God, I pray that there would be those today in this place who would be saved, truly saved, that now understand what it means to worship you. It means to worship in spirit and truth. Hallelujah. Amen. Amen. Thank you for being part of our service today. We don't, listen, Vero Bible Fellowship is not a building. Um, obviously, we don't even own a building. But this place is not Vero Bible Fellowship. Vero Bible Fellowship is the people who believe in God, that God has called out of darkness into light. Our service is geared towards believers, not unbelievers. But we believe that as we believers worship God in spirit and truth, those who are unsaved will see it, and God will open their eyes, and they will be saved. See, so our focus is to love each other and then to, most importantly, love God today. Well, we've taken time to love God. Amen? Amen. Now let's love each other. Before we leave, make sure you love someone. Hey, uh, we have prayer partners. We have elders who will come up front. If you need prayer for any matter in your life, please come forward. If you have received Christ today in your heart because God has opened your spiritual eyes, why don't you come forward and let them know that so that they can pray. They can celebrate that with you, okay? God bless each of you. Thank you for being here today.